Today we're starting a new series. We just finished our, our series on work, redeeming our work, and now we're beginning a summer series on Romans chapter 8, uh, on hope, on hope. But before we, we jump into the chapter, chapter 8, I want to... I want, you to come, I want to invite you to think back to your school days. Think back to your school days. That, you know, depending on your age, that could have been last month, last decade, or last millennium. Um, okay, or century, or century. Um, now, you, may, you probably took many hours of English class. And uh, one of those, during one of those classes, you may have heard a specific phrase. It's a Latin phrase called in medias race in medias race. What it means is into the middle of things. And maybe some of our, our students in classical schools, maybe they heard this phrase or learned it this past year. But it means into the middle of things, and we use it when we talk about stories. Um, certain stories, they don't begin at the beginning, they begin in the middle. So for example, if you read uh, Homer's Odyssey, you don't start at the beginning. You meet Odysseus, he's on an island, he's trapped there, and he's mourning and longing for his home. He wants to return home and be with his wife and son. It's only later that you learn how he ended up on the island, and then you later follow him as he moves towards home and returns back to Ithaca, his, his island home, and to his wife and his son. And many, many stories begin this way in, in movies and in books and in shows, and uh, it adds a little bit of suspense and some mystery. We like it. We enjoy this kind of story because it adds those things. But I think we also like it somewhat because it reflects our, our own experience of life. You know, you, you're born into this world, and you learn to crawl, you learn to walk and, and talk, and you form your first memories, and it's only later that you start to understand your own story. You awaken to who you are, and you don't really know your story because your story isn't just your life. It doesn't just start at the beginning of your life. It starts with your parents' stories, your grandparents' stories. The place that you're born has a history. Um, your family has a history. You come to know who you are over time. Now, many stories um, begin that way, but also in, in Romans, we are also beginning in the middle of things. So Romans chapter 8, you notice, is not Romans chapter 1. Um, we're starting in the middle of the book. And... We're jumping into the middle of a letter that Paul wrote to Christians in Rome in the first century. So we're, we're starting in the middle of the story, the middle of the, of the book, but this chapter, chapter 8, is also, just keep going with the middle, it is the middle, it's about the middle of the Christian life. It's about the time in between. Uh, it's about the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. It's about the time between first putting your faith in Christ and when Christ will eventually return to bring to completion the things that he started in your life. So we're in the middle of things. Chapter 8 is about the Christian life now as we experience it in the day to day. So Jesus has come. He has died. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All of that is true. Our sins are forgiven. But in the day to day, we still see sin in our lives. We still see struggles and, and pain in the world. And, and because of that, we can begin to doubt. We can wonder, am I, am I really saved? Do I really know Christ? 
are my sins really forgiven or am I still condemned? And that's where our, our passage today begins. It begins with a promise that answers that doubt. Let me read it for us. It says in chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us here. We ask that you would come now. Send your spirit to us, that we would be receptive to your word, that we would hear what you have to teach us today through this scripture, and that you would give us encouragement and hope through the book of Romans, through your servant Paul, the words that he wrote, which are, Lord, your words, the words written by the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you be with us now and teach us that we may go forward from this place with renewed hope in what you have done and who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've begun in the middle. And because we've begun in the middle, we're going to do a little bit of a flashback. We're going to do three things. We're going to look at earlier parts of Romans. We're going to talk about three points. Uh, The first part is that outside of Christ, we are self-condemned. The second is in Christ, there is no condemnation. And again, the third point, in Christ, there is sure hope. So we're going to begin with outside of Christ, we are self-condemned. So this is what Paul writes. Um, In Romans 1 to 3, he indicts the entire world. He basically says the whole world is condemned. He starts with the Greco-Roman world, the Gentile culture of his day, and then he turns to his own people, and those are the Jews, and he talks about them. He says they're also condemned. And then he concludes in chapter 3 with this. He says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But how does he get to this conclusion? Let's look what he says. We're going to turn to chapter 1. And just a forewarning, we're going to be jumping around a little bit in in the book of Romans because there's so much that happened before our verse, and we can't understand our verse unless we we look at what came before it. So go to chapter 1, verse 18. If you have your Bibles, you can uh, flip there. If you don't, you can look to the screens. This is what it says in verse 18 in chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What Paul is getting at here in this this section is that human beings know God. Human beings know God. They cannot help but know God. All of creation reveals his power, his divinity, his goodness, and his beauty. In Psalm 19, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies, 
the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation speaks to us through our, through our ears and through our eyes, through our touch and through our taste. And even if you were somehow to suppress like every single sense that you have, you would still be made in the image of God and your conscience would convict you and bear witness to you about God and that you are his creature. But there is a twist in the passage. There's a twist. Paul says that everybody knows God, but they suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. They suppress the knowledge of God. They suppress the truth. They know God, but they do not honor him as God. They don't give thanks to him. And so they became futile in their thinking. So in other words, everyone is accountable to God. Nobody can say, hey, I didn't know. Don't blame me. Everybody knows God. And so this is what scripture teaches. Um, everyone knows God. And then Paul writes, they exchange, in verse 125, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now you may, you may be thinking, is that, is that really true? Does everyone really know the truth about God but exchange that truth for a lie? At first, this may seem really incredible. Maybe you feel like you've met people who they seem not to know God. Um, but I want to question that, question that. Is it really so unbelievable that people suppress the truth? Is it so unbelievable that we would exchange the truth for a lie? I don't think it is. We lie to ourselves all the time because the truth is often, it's often inconvenient and uncomfortable. Um, sometimes the truth is unflattering. The truth doesn't make you look good, and so you want to suppress it, ignore it. Maybe you've heard the phrase, certainly in the last few years, um, maybe the last five years, you've heard that phrase, control the narrative. Have you heard that? Control the narrative. Now, there, there may be a, a benign use of that, of that term, um, but typically it means, controlling the, na the narrative means you, you take whatever data, whatever facts there are, and you want to spend them in a way that serves your purposes and your preferences. And so if you, if you encounter a fact or a data piece that uh, doesn't serve your purpose, you're going to quietly ignore that bit of information. Everyone does this. Um, what you want to believe about yourself and the world can blind you to the truth. Knowledge, knowledge is not morally neutral. Sin also affects our thinking and our knowing. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Our sin has affected our knowledge and our belief. So what is the consequence of this, of this suppression of the truth about God? Paul writes that God gives us over to our, our sins and to our idolatries. So he continues in verse 28. Let me read it for us. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, 
they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is a grim picture. It's a, it's a miserable existence. But, but notice again the knowledge piece that is involved here. They know God's righteous decree that these things deserve death, but they still do them. Their conscience convicts them, yet they keep doing it. And to avoid the guilt of it, to avoid the guilt, they try to put a happy face on it. They try to say that what is evil is actually good. They give approval to those who do the same things. And, and we do that too. We spin things that are wrong in order to make them sound right. So you might say, I'm not envious. I'm just ambitious. I'm not deceitful. I'm just shrewd. I'm not ruthless. I'm just good at business. Or you might say, you know, I'm not mean. I'm just telling the truth. Of course, the truth can be used to tell a lie. We do this. If you call evil good long enough, you might get some people to believe you, and you might start to believe it yourself. So in summary, Paul is saying that creation, all of creation, are being made in the image of God, our conscience, all of this bears witness that we are God's creatures and that we are accountable to him. So that's chapter, that's chapter one. In chapter 2, Paul turns to, to address uh, Jews. So he's just laid out this, in, this ruinous indictment of Greco-Roman culture, of, of Gentile culture. And, you know, the church in Rome, it was a mixed church of people who were Jews and people who were non-Jews, Gentiles. And so the Jews, they're listening along, they're hearing this, that Paul's writing, and they're just saying, yes, 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 we've been saying this forever. Haven't we been saying this forever? And, and then Paul turns the tables on them. He says in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So the Jews, they didn't just have creation telling them about God. They had the physical word of God before them. They had the law of Moses. They had the, the writings of the prophets. They had God speaking to them with words, saying, return to me, repent, warning them that judgment is coming. And yet, they ignored it, and they persisted. And then Paul continues in verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and you know what is his will. You know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. So we have the Gentiles and we have the Jews. He indicts the Gentiles for idolatry, but he indicts the Jews for breaking the law that they have received from God. They both know uh, that something is wrong. They both are trying to, to make things right. And so their consciences convict both of them. Now, all this talk, this talk about Jews and Gentiles, it can be a little bit foreign to us in the modern day. Uh, it was very relevant at that time. 
Um, but a, a way you might understand it today is to think of people who are, who are churched, people who have grown up going to church their whole life or who have a lot of experience in, in the church, and that's typically common in the South. And then you have people who are unchurched, who haven't grown up in the church. And so Paul is speaking to both. In chapter 1, he's really addressing the unchurched. In, in chapter 2, he's talking more to the churched. So if you, if you think about it, the church people, can, people who've gone to church, they can really relate to, to words about breaking the law of God, uh, sin, and guilt. Those are categories that they're familiar with. But if you, if you speak that way to people who haven't been in, in church, those really aren't going to resonate much. And so what Paul does for them is he talks about idolatry. Um, he talks about idolatry. Um, the unchurched feel like they can make their own meaning in life. This is as old as the Greeks. Um, the Greek philosopher Protagoras, he said, man is the measure of all things. And more recently, people have said, I am the master of my own fate. Or you might hear today, I get to decide what's right for me. Those are all things that the, the Gentiles would say, the, the unchurched would say. But it turns out when you live this way, when you make good things into ultimate things, and that's the essence of idolatry, when you make good things into ultimate things, you, you leave a trail of loss and hurt and heartbreak in your wake. And you leave yourself empty and, and dissatisfied. We were made to worship our creator. And so idolatry is a sham. And autonomy, being your own law, is a lie. It's a dead end. And so the, char the characteristic sin of the, of the church is to, is to pretend to be righteous when you're actually not. It's self-righteousness. And so uh, you look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. They had the law, and they acted like they kept the law when really they didn't keep the law. They were hypocrites. They were self-righteous. And the char characteristic sin of the unchurched is to find all these other things as God's substitutes and pursue them in a hopeless search for lasting satisfaction. Both groups know something is wrong, and they both try in their own way to make it right, but they can't, and they know it, and so they're self-condemned. And so Paul concludes in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Outside of Christ, we are self-condemned. So that brings us to point two. In Christ, in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So just, just pause for a moment and consider how these words in Romans 8.1 would make no sense if you didn't understand a concept of sin. Like, if you don't know that there is condemnation out there, if you hear this word, hey, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, people will say, oh, okay, yeah, I, I know there's not any condemnation. I, I knew that before you told me. Uh, I, I don't feel condemned at all. I'm, I'm happy with my life. They need a sense of sin for this to be good news. And this is why there's a pastor in, in Washington, D.C. His name is Mark Deaver. He says whenever he's trying to share about Jesus and what Jesus has done, he prays. He prays that the Holy Spirit would give the person that he's talking to a conviction of sin. Because if you don't have a conviction of sin, a sense of your need for what Christ has done, then you can say, hey, Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. And people will say, well, that's nice. Um, you didn't have to. You didn't have to do it for me. 
I'm, my sins aren't so bad. Nobody needs to die for them. But if you realize the depth of your idolatry, the depth of your sin, then you realize, oh, I really do need Christ. It's when you feel that need that this becomes good news. But how is it that there can be no condemnation? How can there be no condemnation? Paul answers this in Romans chapter 3. He says in verse 22, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So everyone falls short of the glory of God. The Gentiles fall short through idolatry, and the Jews fall short through worshiping, uh, through, through breaking God's law. And they, they both uh, are trying to seek God's favor through, uh, through making their own meaning or through self-righteous law-keeping. Neither group will escape judgment, is what Paul is saying. Both are trying to find peace, but there is no peace where they are looking. The only peace that is available is the peace that is offered by God himself, and that peace is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word justification means to, to declare someone righteous, to say that somebody is right. They are just. And, and that causes a problem because if you are aware of yourself, aware of your sin, and then we talk about justification and God being the one who justifies, God being the one who says, you are righteous now. Is God, how can God make people who are idolatrous and sinful righteous? It seems that if he's saying that we are justified, he's saying something about us that isn't true. Because if I look at my life, I'm noticing there's a lot of things that aren't righteous. How is it possible for God to call people righteous who are not righteous? Is God lying? Now, God makes this possible. God makes this possible through Christ, through the redemption that was purchased by Christ. God put him forward, the text says, as a propitiation by his blood. Now, propitiation is a big, one of the big Bible words. But we can understand it when we think back to the Old Testament context. Um, redemption and propitiation make us think about the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel were in Egypt, and God was going to judge Egypt and bring his people out. And he told them, before the judgment was going to come, that they were to kill a lamb. Kill that lamb and put its blood on your doorposts so that when the judgment comes, it will pass over you. That's where the Passover comes from. That's why we call it the Passover. So he called, he called them to kill the lamb. And so when the judgment came, the death did not fall on them. It fell on the lamb. The death of the lamb propitiates, it satisfies God's wrath against sin. And it turns his wrath into favor. The, de the, the lamb gets the judgment and his people get favor. But 
it's not really the lamb that took away the sin of the people of Israel. That lamb in the Old Testament pointed forward to a true lamb, the one who would one day come to remove the sins of the people. And that's why John, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus in the book of John, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That lamb in Exodus pointed to Jesus and what he would do in giving his life. But there, so we can say that there is no condemnation because Jesus took the condemnation for sin upon himself. But you might say, that's not just. How is it possible for somebody to take the judgment that is due to somebody else? And that brings us to this, this que- the question of language in, in this text. We hear this, this phrase, in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now there's many, many ways to understand this, this idea of being in Christ. But one of the ways is understanding it as representation. Being in Christ is about representation. Jesus was not a private person. He was a public person who represented a people. Jesus represents a people, his own people. And he was acting on behalf of his people so that however he goes, so go his people because they are represented by him. They are in him. And so in Romans, Romans chapter 5, we realize that there's actually two people that are representative of the human race. There's two people. Uh, There are people who are represented by Christ, and however Christ goes, they go. And then the, the other people are represented by Adam. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So you have in Adam, or you have in Christ. And so in Romans 5, we read this, chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And again, in 1 Corinthians we read that for an Adam, for as an Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You can either be in Adam, which leads to condemnation and death, because What did he do with his life? He rebelled against God, and he brought death upon himself. And not only himself, he was a public person, everybody else that he represented, the whole human race. Or you can be in Christ, and that leads to justification, righteousness, and life. Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity, and he frees us from sin and death. That's what it means to be in Christ. There's a a great story. Um, Maybe you've read it. Um, you, you've heard of the book A Tale of Two Cities. And I know I, I talked about Charles Dickens last time I preached, uh, but I'm on a Dickens kick right now, some long car, car rides, audiobooks, it just works. Um, but there's a, there's a wonderful book, Tale of Two Cities. It's about revolutionary France. And, and it's about the, the pent-up anger of the French peasants against the French aristocracy who have abused them and exploited them for centuries. And eventually that anger explodes into a revolution. 
And so one woman who represents this anger really well is, a, is called Madame Defarge. And, and she walks around with, with knitting gear. So she's knitting. Everywhere she goes, she's knitting, 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 knitting. And what she's doing is she's, she's making a list of all the aristocrats she wants to have killed. And so she, she codes their names into the scarf, and it gets longer and longer and longer. And when the revolution comes, she goes and finds each person on that list to arrest them and then send them to the guillotine. But the main plot line of the story follows a man named Charles Darnay. And Charles, he's the son of an aristocratic family. But he renounces his title, and he renounces his fortune, and he moves to England. He doesn't want anything to do with his family and the corruption of the family. And he, and he moves to England to work his own ways. And, and there in England, he prospers. He, he works, he, he makes money, he gets, gets married, he has a wife and a daughter. He has a good life. But actually, the, the fortune eventually does pass to him because all of his older male relatives have passed away. And so what he does is he, he appoints a steward to manage his estate. And he instructs the steward to use the fortune to take care of the workers and to provide for the poor in the village. So that's what Charles does. And when the revolution breaks out, eventually his, his steward gets arrested by the revolutionaries, and he's in prison, and he's writing to Charles in England, asking for Charles to come and rescue him. And so Charles comes. He comes back to France. But then Charles himself gets arrested. He's imprisoned. His family comes to, to rescue him. His father-in-law was a prisoner in the Bastille. He has some a good reputation, and he uses his influence to get his son-in-law out. But not two hours later, he gets rearrested. The guilt of his family is just too deep, and, and the people of France want to lay the sins of the centuries on any aristocrat they can find. They want them to bear their guilt. They want them to face judgment. And so, Charles, in prison again, he is hopeless. He is alone in a Paris prison. He's lost hope. And the next morning, he's going to go to the guillotine. But Charles has a friend. He's an Englishman named Sidney. And Sidney loves Charles, loves his wife, loves the daughter, loves the family. And so Sidney comes to Paris, and he blackmails a guard to gain access to the prison. And He's talking with Charles, and when Charles realizes what Sidney wants to do, Sidney and Charles have always looked alike. When Charles realizes what Sidney's going to do, they struggle in the cell, and, and Sidney covers Charles' mouth, and, and Charles passes out. And, and then Charles takes off, I'm sorry, Sidney takes off Charles' clothes, puts them on himself, and takes his clothes and puts them on Charles. And then he sends Charles out, unconscious, with the guard to leave the prison. And Sidney remains in the cell. So the count of bodies going to the guillotine the next morning will be the same. He takes the place of Charles in the execution. And as he's walking to the guillotine, he's whispering to himself the words of Jesus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And Sidney dies, and Charles is free to live, and he returns to England and lives with his family. 
sin is a prison. It is a weight upon us that entraps us. And no amount of good you do or I do can undo that guilt. And the guilt demands justice, your death, my death. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took, who took on human flesh, he comes to you, your faithful friend. He comes to that cell and he opens the door. And he takes your sinful garments and puts them on himself. And he takes his righteousness and dresses you in his righteousness. And where are you during all this? You are unconscious on the floor. If you were awake, you would want to stay in that prison. You would do everything you could to stay there. You would struggle against it. If you had your way, you would still be there. But Christ is merciful. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He died our death, but he rose again. And on the third day, he rose. That he rose in glorious resurrection life. Death could not hold him. And so, if you believe in Jesus, he is your representative. As he goes, so you go. He died, he was condemned, so you also died and were condemned. But in him, he lives, so you also live, and you will live. As he goes, so you go. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If you are in Christ, he's taken your place, he represents you, there is no condemnation for you. That brings us to our third point. In Christ, there is sure hope. And I said that this this sermon series about chapter 8 in Romans, it's about hope. And you're thinking, maybe you're thinking, you know, you said it was about hope, but all you've done so far is talk about condemnation and propitiation. And that's a really big word. Um, but we couldn't understand. We couldn't understand this verse if we didn't know what came before. We had to do a little flashback. We had to see how we got here. We started in the middle of things. Now we're back to the middle, back to the middle of a Christian life. Because our foundation, our hope, is not founded on the idea that there is no condemnation. No, there is condemnation. And there should be condemnation because we long for justice. The wickedness and the exploitation that we see in the world demands justice. And we want it. We want to see the evil in our world, the evil that we see, we want to see it gone and done away with. But the problem is, if we were to do that, we would have to also do away with ourselves. Because we are part of the problem. I am part of the problem. You are part of the problem. Our only hope rests in the finished work of Christ, his work of redemption, his death on the cross, his rising from the grave. And if you believe in him, you have faith in him, you trust him with your life, then you are in Christ and you are saved. He represents you. And what is true about him becomes true about you. He died and he rose, so you also will die and rise to new resurrection life because your sins are forgiven. Since Jesus' work of redemption is accomplished, our hope is secure right now in the presence, in the present tense. Because what does it say? There is therefore now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not just in the past, 
not in the future, but right now, you can live without condemnation. But for various reasons, uh, for various reasons, we can lose hope. We can lose our confidence. We can lose our assurance of God's favor. And we sometimes suspect that we may still be condemned. Because I don't know about you, but when I look at my life, I can see a whole lot of sin, a lot of thoughts that I don't want, a lot of actions that I don't want to keep doing. It's like, man, why am I fighting like this again? Why am I arguing like this again? Why, why am I so selfish? And when you see that weight of sin, and, and Satan takes it and he, he throws it in your face, you can feel condemned and wonder, am I really, am I really saved or am I, am I still condemned in my sins? Or maybe, maybe you're looking at yourself and you're, you're thinking, of a, you're trying to seek some experience, some experience of God's favor. Maybe you've, at some point in your life, really experienced the favor of God, the love of God, and you knew it and it was wonderful, but then that season stopped and you don't feel it right now and you, you despair and you wonder, does God really love me still? We're going to one camp in a, in a few weeks. A lot of people look at one camp as this um, like mountaintop experience where you can be close to God and, and have a wonderful experience. And so some people will, will, will look forward to one camp every year because that's the only place they feel close to God. And so the rest of the year, they just feel like they begin to doubt again and again and again. And, and then other times people go to one camp and they're expecting to be close to God, but then they're not. And they feel, again, despair. Does God really love me? Do I really have peace with him? Or maybe, maybe you're, just a, you're just a skeptical person. You have a skeptical disposition. And, and, you, and your faith is weak and you know it and you feel, is it enough? And so you might lose hope. But these three things, they all have something in common. The thing they have in common is that you are looking at yourself. You're looking at yourself and your own experience. If you focus on yourself and your own experience, you will often doubt and you will often lose hope. The thing is, it's not about you. It's not about what you've done or haven't done, what you feel or what you don't feel. It's about what Christ has done, what he has accomplished, and the promise he makes to you that when you put your faith in him, your sins are forgiven. A weak faith in a mighty God is much better than a, than a strong faith in no God at all or, or a strong faith in yourself. You think of a branch. If you have a strong faith in a weak branch, no matter how strong your faith is, you depend on that branch, it's going to break. But even if you have a weak faith, our God is a strong branch. And if you have a weak faith in a strong branch, it's going to hold. And it will hold you even though your faith is weak. Martin Luther had a, a particularly sensitive and, and scrupulous conscience. Um, he would go to confession all the time. He would, he would go for hours and try to confess every sin and every possible sin, every thought that he could think of, and even the things that he couldn't think of, he'd try to confess that. And so th there's a great scene in the, in the 2003 movie Luther depicting this, this reality for Luther. And his confessor, his, his abbot, the guy in charge of the monastery, is just tired of all these hours that Luther's trying to confess to him. And, and he says to Luther, what do you seek, Martin? And Luther says, a merciful God, a God whom I can love, a God who loves me. And his, his abbot said, then look to Christ. 
Bind yourself to Christ, and you will know God's love. Say to him, I am yours. Save me. And Luther said, I am yours. Save me. I am yours. Save me. I am yours. Save me. That was his prayer. So when you feel overwhelmed, you can pray that too. You can pray, I am yours. Save me. I am yours. Save me from my short temper. I am yours. Save me from my lust. I am yours. Save me from my self-centeredness. I am yours. Save me. We can have confidence in that word because that's the promise Christ gives us. Listen to the end, close to the end of Romans chapter 8. It says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? God has done the hard thing. You're not trapped on an island like Odysseus. You're not locked away in a cell like Charles Darwin. He's freed you from those places. You're free. If God did not spare his own son, what will he not do for our sake? In Christ, no charge can be brought against you. There is no one to condemn you. Jesus has died, he has risen, and now he is at the right hand of God, interceding for you, assuring that you're going to make it home. You're going to make it to the end. And because Jesus is assuring it, you know that your hope is secure. I want to end with some, some participation on you guys' part. Um, and that is this. Um, in the Reformation, there were lots of different catechisms. But one of, one of them that's, that's really good is called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only hope, your only comfort in life and in death? I want us to read the answer to this question together, and then we will close. We should have it on the screens, I think. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, let's say it together. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins, with his precious blood, and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for the work of redemption. Lord, we know our need. We know that there is condemnation, that it is due. And apart from you, apart from Christ, outside of him, we are condemned. We condemn ourselves, Lord. We, our consciences convict us. Lord, we praise you 
for the work of Christ, for sending him while we were your enemies, sending him to die in our place and to satisfy your justice. Lord, we ask that you would let us go forth from this place fully, fully assured of the hope that we have in Christ because it's not about what we have done, Lord. It's about what you have done in Christ. And so, Lord, give us faith that we would trust and follow you, trust in your Son and depend on him, not just at the moment of salvation, the moment of belief, but throughout our lives, here in the middle of things, and trusting that you will bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name.